Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. The biggest story internationally has been, I think, the banks and uh, SVB and other bank failures. More casualties, like the Silicon Valley Bank, may be on the way. And there could be impact on Canada and the Canadian economy. Philip Cross, for 36 years at StatsCan, appointed the chief economic advisor in 2008. Mr. Cross is a Monk Senior Fellow in Economics. He's at the McDonald laurie Institute. And he joins us on The Roy Green Show. Philip, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Great to have you with us. We had a conversation off the air the other day. I almost want to ask you how to go with the uh, with the raccoon. Yeah, I just got him out of the house this morning. Oh, good. Oh, good. All right. Excellent. Did uh, the SVB closing its doors and and failing surprise you at all? It surprised me that the first casualty was a uh, bank, uh, but I was certainly expecting casualties. I mean, we're moving from a regime in which we've had uh, near zero interest rates for almost a decade to a much higher interest rate uh, regime as central banks move to fight inflation it was inevitable there were going to be some casualties because of that. You just knew that there were uh, going to be some people out there who had in their balance sheets who had made big bets that interest rates would stay lower for longer. It's hardly surprising that they would make these bets. They were told by central bankers, like our own Tiff Macklem, that uh, interest rates would be lower for longer. And surprise, a year later, central banks were raising rates uh, back to more normal levels. So, uh, it's not a surprise at all that uh, that there's a casualty, but normally banks do well when interest rates rise, so it's, it's a surprise that the first casualty was a bank. Uh, but what happened there was that banks, usually their income statement improves as interest rates increase, but in this case, the damage to their balance sheet from uh, the repricing of all these bonds they were holding was uh, was just too much and the institution couldn't survive. So for most of us, uh, it was a, maybe a one-off thing that we expected. And we were told that SVB had uh, been, that it was a management issue of SVB. They'd uh, spent or lent millions or billions of dollars to the tech sector and uh, particularly tech startups. But when, the, I don't know if we can call it contagion yet, but when another bank starts to fall and others starts to worry, and then you have Credit Suisse, huge Swiss bank in trouble, and it's not the first time they've been in trouble, Yep. But it starts to worry people. You start to look at your at your own bank account. You start to look at your own realities, your mortgage, your options. Uh, the, the picture changes for folks. How worried should we be individually about what's going on? Well, it's quite understandable for people to have that reaction. I mean, you know, the, the memory of the 2008-2009 global financial crisis is still fresh in people's minds. Yes, it is. And let's not forget that, you know, 19 of the 20 largest financial institutions in the U.S., uh, went under or needed government bailouts to keep going. So it's quite normal that people would reflectively think, oh, my God, here we go again. But I, I think it is quite different. Uh, the problems we're seeing in the U.S. banking sector are at the mid-sized regional banks uh, where regulations were changed by the Trump administration. There's no sign that the big banks uh, are in, in uh, any kind of major trouble. And there's certainly no suggestion that there's any problem here with Canadian banks. I mean, let's remember, we're, when we're talking about the global financial crisis of 2008-2009, where major financial institutions around
around the world were going under. Our bank sailed through that with uh, with hardly a blemish. So I don't think there's any reason for Canadians to be nervous about their banks. And I think most Americans sleep soundly that uh, the major banks are doing okay. And, and the U.S. government has stepped in and, and guaranteed most deposits. So uh, I think, uh, yes, people are going to quite naturally be nervous. But I, I don't think we're looking at anything like a rerun of 2008, 2009. Where are your concerns? My concern is about that there's a whole bunch of other investments that have been made out there uh, that are going to go bad. And you never know exactly what. I mean, we've already seen some sectors. I mean, uh, cryptocurrencies have been badly hit. Real estate in Canada has been taking a big fall. I mean, you know, house sales were down 40% year over year in February. Um so, you know, there are clearly some sectors of the economy, high tech, you know, that's one of the reasons SPV went under, was receiving daily layoffs now from formerly um, uh, enviable firms like Meta and uh, Amazon. So, you know, some sectors are suffering out there. Uh, but that's one of the things is you, you, it's really hard to predict exactly, you know, that's why Nicholas Taleb called them black swans. They're black swans because they're totally unpredictable. You don't know who exactly out there has made a bad bet on interest rates staying low, basically until it's too late and they've gone under. Uh, It's a reminder, you know, it's Ernest Hemingway said that's how uh, people go bankrupt, first gradually and then all of a sudden. And that's very much what we saw with SPV. Uh, And uh, it's, you know, it's likely we'll see uh, other firms like that. But exactly which ones, at this point, nobody knows. Or somebody said, um, you don't know who's swimming nude until the tide goes out. Yes, Warren Buffett. Warren Warren Buffett, yeah. 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 (laughs) And, uh, yeah, we're finding out now um, who who has committed themselves to uh, uh, arrange their balance sheet on the assumption that interest rates would stay low. And every day that goes by as interest rates stay higher, uh, it's going to expose more and more people. Um, so I, I'm afraid, you know, this is just going to be the first of what is likely to be several. The, the good news is it's unlikely that there'll be any major banks in either Canada or the U.S. that will follow SPV, but there will be other firms, and some of them may be quite sizable. Okay. Uh, Philip, you uh, said that banks look safe to you in our major economies like like ours, or at least our Canadian economy, and in the United States. But you did have concern that some enterprises may fail and maybe some big ones. Where are the concerns? Well, the concerns are that, um, you know, that people bet on lower interest rates staying lower for longer. Right. And, you know, we don't know exactly, you know, the uh, firms hold a lot of money, a lot of assets on their balance sheets. Uh, in things like um, they set money aside in pensions for their employees. Uh, if they've been holding those in bonds, you know, they've taken a big capital loss. I mean, it's estimated that in U.S. banks, something like 28% of their balance sheets have been wiped out by unrealized losses on their holdings of bonds. Um, so we know that we have very detailed accounting of what's going on in, in bank balance sheets. We don't have as detailed accounting for everyone else. So uh, it's hard to know precisely, but uh, uh, it's uh, you know we've already seen in in uh, 
And it's not everything is, is bonds. You know, we've seen the real estate, for example, has taken a big hit. Uh, the cryptocurrencies, the, the special purpose uh, uh, buying vehicles, buying companies, uh, a lot of esoteric investments uh, have already gone under as interest rates have normalized. So uh, we'll see how many others do. Yeah. What's next for interest rates? Well, I'm afraid that um, it depends on what interest, what central banks target. If they were just looking at inflation, they're going to follow what the European Central Bank did yesterday. And the European Central Bank yesterday, despite the turmoil in European banks like Credit Suisse that you mentioned, they decided to proceed with raising interest rates another half a point to fight inflation. Uh, they basically said fighting inflation is more important than financial stability, that financial stability, you know, we can address that with other tactics like guaranteeing uh, deposits for people, but we still have to fight inflation. We haven't seen in North America, we haven't seen the Fed or the Bank of Canada declare where their priorities are, because unfortunately, whether you fight inflation or whether you are for uh, financial stability has different implications for interest rates. Uh, I think that the as time goes on, as every month goes by and inflation stays high, and especially as wage increases stay high, uh, close to 5% in this country, uh, every month that wages stay near 5%, it's going to be harder and harder for the central bank to get their inflation back to the target of 2%. Yes, they brought it down from near 9% to 6%. That was sort of the easy part. Now the really hard part starts, and I suspect that if they're committed to lowering inflation, they're going to have to maintain interest rates higher for longer than they anticipated, and that's going to complicate things. That's good for bringing down inflation, but that's going to complicate things, as I say, for people who had made bets that interest rates would stay low for a long time, and it increases the risk of financial instability or of some major companies going bust. Um, so it's it's a it's a you know a, central banks have stick handled themselves into a very nasty corner here. Yeah, their their credibility's been hurt, hasn't it? At least in the short term. Uh, not hurt. I would say shredded. Um, you know they have missed infl the misjudged inflation at every turn. When inflation first started up in 2021, they said, "Oh, don't worry, it's transitory." Well, it turns out it wasn't transitory. It was much more entrenched than they thought. Uh, then they thought that they uh, they were slow to raise rates uh, to catch up to higher inflation. And then most recently, we saw from Tiff Macklin the suggestion of a pause. And they announced a pause just before uh, the Federal Reserve Board and the European Central Bank signaled that they're going to continue with half-point increases, which means we're likely going to have to follow, because if we don't, the Canadian dollar is going to fall rapidly, and that's going to put upward pressure on import prices, and imports are about 35-40% of the, of the consumer price index. So you can't let the dollar fall too much. So, um, you know, they, they've made three major mistakes in managing inflation just over the last year, and now it's been exposed that they've major, made a major mistake in uh, underestimating the impact of their actions on financial stability. So... Um, you know, they've, uh, central banks, I don't know why anybody, frankly, would listen to them or believe them these days. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty bad when, uh, you know, when a talk show host makes a better call on interest rates than the central bank. 
And I did. I did make a better call than the central bank. Yeah, uh, and uh, you weren't alone. I mean, a lot oh, of people, yeah. including uh, Mervyn King, uh, the former governor of the Bank of England, openly said, you know, it was completely predictable that with the increase in the money supply we saw in the pandemic, that inflation was going to go up. He said it was predictable. Some people did predict it. Central banks ignored those predictions uh, and went with their own models of inflation, which proved to be wrong. Um, so I, I think, uh, but, you know, to be fair to central banks, it's not all in central banks. Uh, we had governments during the pandemic were running very large deficits, too. And, you know, as long as governments are running large deficits, it just it encouraged this whole mentality that, that money was easy. Money was free for borrowing. It was free for governments to spend. And as long as governments were running big deficits, it was natural for people to think, oh, they'll keep interest rates low because governments are borrowing so much. So there's an interaction here between easy monetary policy and, and large government deficits. And, uh, you know, it's not all central bankers. I mean, we've been very hard on central bankers in this conversation. And, you know, they frankly, they deserve it. Uh, but they are not alone in this. What would you um, what would you advise the federal government, which is going to be delivering its budget on the twenty eighth of March? What you what would you advise them should be prim- primary a uh, primary concern and their primary message um, to, to 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 Canadians and you know our, our our economic sector and just the folks? I think they at this moment they have to. Uh, they have to accept that they can contribute to both lower inflation and more financial stability. We talked about how, you know, those goals are are in conflict for a central bank. If they're worried about inflation, they should probably be raising interest rates. If they're worried about financial stability, they should be lowering them. But the federal government's in a position where they can help out with both. They, If they rein in their spending, that will help lower inflationary pressures. Uh, if If they... Uh, indicate that they're taking financial stability seriously and they stand ready uh, to uh, to help uh, the central banks maintain financial stability. That will contribute on that front as well. So okay. uh, I, I think just managing, showing that they're, uh, they're managing public finances in a responsible, prudent way would go a long way to calming people down. All right. But if we continue with this, you know, we're just going to continue spending, then people are going to go, oh, okay, so interest rates will stay low, and uh, that's just going to create all kinds okay. of bad expectations. Okay, let's talk about this country and talk about China and Russia and where we stand and how well we are prepared to take care of ourselves and how willing we are to take on that responsibility or unwilling we are to take on that responsibility. Last Sunday, Vice Admiral Mark Norman provided me his speaking notes from Friday night at the Conference of Defense Associations in which he warned Canadians that our way of life is under threat because of successive federal governments have not treated Canadian national security and our ability to defend ourselves as seriously as we should. You can find the notes, which I uh, published on my program's webpage, globalnews.ca slash Roy Green, globalnews.ca slash Roy Green. They're there for you to uh, read anytime. All the interviews there as well for you to listen to. And our podcast, and you can subscribe to the podcast right there at globalnews.ca slash Roy Green. I asked Admiral Norman if he would come on the program today. He spent some time with us last Sunday. 
But he would come on the program and speak some more about his notes and how significant what he said should be to all political parties, to the current government and future governments. Admiral Norman, uh, former commanding officer of the Royal Canadian Navy, former vice chief of the defense staff. Admiral, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Roy, and uh, good afternoon to you and your listeners. Uh, it was a pleasure to uh, to talk to you. Well, thank you. Um, it's an honor to speak with you. Uh, you started, your second sentence into your notes, we're not taking defense and security seriously in this country, and our way of life is in jeopardy as a result. That's a wake-up call. Yeah, absolutely. And and I know it may appear to be a, a stark statement. Uh, perhaps some would argue it's uh, it's overstated, but I, I genuinely believe that we have we have some serious issues. There's layers to this that uh, we we don't have all, we don't have the time to unpack completely. But fundamentally, um, we we are not behaving seriously. Uh, we are perceived as weak. We are perceived as inconsistent. Uh, we are perceived as self uh, absorbed, and uh, as a result, I I believe that uh, we are easily um, either disregarded, uh, circumvented or ultimately uh, used by others to, to achieve their, their national objectives. And, and this plays out in multiple uh, ways. And it's not just about defense, and it's not just about defense spending, but certainly those are key issues here. It is a much deeper um, understanding and application of, of the concept of security as we see ourselves in, in what is becoming an increasingly insecure world. Yeah, Admiral, you uh, you went on to say that what you see is a, quote, woefully inadequate, arguably non-existent national security culture here in Canada. So we've become comfortable with this sense of, of what? That, uh, that we can always rely on our southern neighbor or that we're just not going to get involved, we're not going to play... Uh, Play the, in the in the in the big boys arena. I had a conversation with a friend the other day, and I said to the friend, "You know, the Russians and the Chinese would have more concerns about taking on Switzerland than they'd have taking on Canada." Well, <laughs> I'm not sure about that comparison. You got me chuckling, but nonetheless, I think you know the fundamental issue here is, um, in terms of a lack of culture, is that um, I. I think there's been a number of contributors to this, and and I I think your point is a good one, that we have depended on others um, fundamentally. I go way back in history. We don't have a lot of time, but you know we were part of uh, you know the British Empire. We then became under the protection of the United States, due in part to the geography that can't be denied, and um, we didn't get a free ride. Um, but we certainly got a very uh, cheap ride. And, uh, you know, it, it's just got to a point now where the threats are not just in the physical domain. They're not just about um, the physical geography of North America. They're much deeper, much broader. And we're not talking about them. And, and you know, your previous story, you were talking about issues related to possible uh, election interference and these types of things. Cyber attacks are happening more and more frequently, and these are things that go right to the heart of how our entire society operates and functions on a day-to-day -day basis. And when those things start to become 
um, jeopardized, I think we need to start taking it far more seriously. That's really the message I'm trying to communicate. Yeah, and, and there's this, uh, there's this uh, let's see, one sentence, one sentence. I genuinely believe that the global security situation has fundamentally changed in the past few years, and the complacency and attendant risk management approaches to defense and security matters implemented by successive governments of all political orientations have severely undermined not only our credibility as a nation, but more importantly, our national security, which takes us back to what you said at the beginning, that we're looked at, I won't say as a joke, but we're not terribly concerning to anyone. Uh, and, and it's successive governments, and we can't just point at one party and one government. It's been going on for decades, and our security has suffered, our intelligence has suffered, and we walk around as though everything's fine, Admiral. It's, it isn't. Remind us, please, of, of and you just talked about the several threats, but what is the most significant threat this country faces to our way of life? Well, I, I would say it is, the, it is the rapid and disturbing growth of China and uh, its actions with respect to both undermining um, the uh, global system that, that Canada has enjoyed operating in for the last 80 plus years. And it's, uh, it's clear attempts to reset um, the global order, both in terms of economics, uh, global supply chain, uh, financing systems, um, the uh, rules-based system that we refer to frequently, um, understanding of physical sovereignty as it relates to the uh, ongoing concerns in the South China Sea and, the, and Taiwan. Uh, it's just an ongoing list, and, and they're being very strategic in their actions. They're playing a long game, and, uh, and we're, what we're reacting to are symptoms of what is a much deeper and disturbing um, set of strategies that China's had in place for decades and, and is, uh, is, is implementing in order to reset the system in their, in their preferred order of things. Yeah, and you said as well, our way of life, um, uh, let's see now, Canada, however, is no longer immune to events on other, the other side of the world, and nor is our way of life guaranteed simply because of our proximity to the United States. That's what we like to bank on. Oh, the Americans will be yeah. there for us. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and they always have, um, because it was in their interest to do so. But I mean, we're seeing a shift in in the 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 approach of the United States, both domestically and as it relates to the Canada-U.S. relationship, um, we're seeing we're seeing the fact that there there are other countries who are not as physically or geographically close to the United States that are now much more closely aligned. Um, the recent, uh, well, now a year old or so, um, AUKUS, uh, Australian, UK, US. Um, relationship is an indicator of the fact that um, the United States will never deny that we're a friend and an ally, but um, in terms of relative priority, uh, we've taken a serious hit in the last uh, year or so. And I think it's a direct function of the fact that we're, we're not being perceived as credible in the way we're acting and behaving. So, uh, you know, these, these are these are all indicators. Uh, there's no one single event or one single threat or one single problem, but it is a very complex, um, you know, system. And uh, I'm, I'm just 
I'm not seeing as many positives on on the ledger sheet as I think we should be seeing. Admiral Norman, when I when I watched um, and I said atomic submarines, I don't know. I was thinking comic books, uh, nuclear submarines. When I watched the prime ministers of Australia and the UK and the president of the United States talking about the, uh, confirming the AUKUS agreement, we know what it is. We should have been there. Canada should have been there. It must, it must hurt you as the former commanding officer of the Royal Canadian Navy to know that we're not there, that our Navy isn't represented. Our Navy cannot do what it is tasked to do. And had you not provided the supply ship, we wouldn't even be an international navy. We'd be a coastal defense force. But that that must have been disturbing to you, seeing this go on without Canada. Yeah, it is. And, you know, there's no denying it. I think you've set it, set it up well. I'd add a couple of other perspectives that are a little less personal. Um, you know, the first thing is I'm very um, disappointed with uh, the dismissive nature of uh, the conversation by some, including the prime minister, who uh, a year ago uh, dismissed the conversation around AUKUS as being only about submarines, um, because it's not. It's much deeper than that, which is why it is of concern to me. Um, we could have a discussion about the merits of, of a one type of submarine against another, but that's not what this, this discussion is about today. Um, but what's, what's really um, at play here is cooperation um, in a highly classified uh, discussions um, around very important technologies like quantum, like um, biometrics, like um, acoustics, uh, which are fundamental to the deeper issues around uh, submarine warfare itself, not just the submarines, uh, hypersonic weapons. Uh, there's a whole variety of technologies that are being um, uh, discussed and shared and cooperated on um, through this agreement. And the other disturbing element of this is, is that those who tend to categorize this as some sort of um, club, uh, very dismissive, uh, you know, um, colonial white guys club. And I think that, that that sort of language is absolutely inappropriate uh, for a variety of reasons. And I've seen it in social media and elsewhere. And I just want, you know, your listeners to understand that, that, that this is a key development in international um, security and defense. And uh, we are absent. And I think it should be of concern. Um, why we are absent. Um, and, and I think it is going to uh, further degrade our reputation and our ability to influence others um, as we go forward. But, you know, that's a long answer to your question. No, but, but what are we capable of today, Admiral Norman? If we, if we had to stand up, if we had to stand up and defend ourselves, fight for ourselves, what are we capable of? And I'm not suggesting that our military, our men and women in the military are not uh, completely devoted to this country and, and wouldn't sacrifice everything, including their lives. But they don't have what they need. But what are we capable of? Yeah, so, I mean, so there's the essence of quantity and quality. And, and let's, let's put credit where credit is due, and let's say that we do have, as you suggest, uh, very good people. And I genuinely believe that. That was my experience for my entire career, and I have no reason to think that it's not continuing. But yeah, there's an element here of of bench strength. I used that mess, I used that term in our last conversation. We don't have any bench strength. We can put a line um, on uh, on the ice, but uh, we're not going to be able to play a full game. Now, some would argue, well, you know, what what what's the point? Why do we need? Who are we fighting? That's not it. Even if we accept the fundamental premise 
of our defense responsibilities, which is A, that we will ensure that Canada is not a uh, pathway for others um, into the United States or elsewhere, and that we will contribute in a useful and meaningful way to collective security, both in terms of NORAD for North America and more broadly as part of NATO. Um, we, we struggle to maintain a 1,000-person battle group deployed um, uh, in, in Latvia on the Russian border. Uh, we struggle to maintain a 1,000-person battle group, which, by the way, does not have the right equipment um, given the ongoing threat in that part of the world. And Canada has been, the Canadian forces have been arguing to get air defense and other capabilities like that for years uh, that we've now sent to Ukraine. I agree fully that we should send those to Ukraine, but our own Canadian sons and daughters don't have the capabilities that they should have sitting on the border in Latvia. And I use that as an example. And the same problem applies to the, the Navy and the Army, or, or sorry, the Navy and the Air Force um, with respect to there's not enough of it, the stuff they have isn't new enough, and there aren't enough people, and, and they're losing people faster than they can bring them in. And I believe genuinely that one of the contributors to that problem is the fact that the armed forces in Canada is not um, appreciated by the very society that it's there to protect. The government is not helping institution be recognized and appreciated. And as a result, Canadians are not choosing to serve their country um, because they don't see the opportunity to serve in the armed forces as being something meaningful. And that goes right back to the opening exchange that we had about the lack of a security culture in this country. Yeah. If we genuinely thought that security was important, we wouldn't be having conversations about why people are or aren't joining the armed forces. Yeah, very they much would, so. Yeah. So, you know, it's all connected, unfortunately. And uh, we're in a bad place right now. We've all suffered post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, the nightmares uh, continue. Just thinking that George Lovey is back on the streets and virtually controlling his own cards is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, not even to the point, point right now where he hasn't even got an, a an ankle bracelet. Don Edwards, uh, former Team Canada goaltender, Buffalo Sabres, Calgary Flames, goaltender on uh, the freedoms that are being afforded the man who murdered Don's parents. And uh, much in the news at this time about the Supreme Court of this country having decided it's unconstitutional to deny parole opportunity consecutively for multiple first-degree murder convictions. So we're going to talk about that with our guest, Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney in Alberta, former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association. Scott also had intervener status at a parole eligibility hearing for British Columbia mass child murderer Clifford Olson. And it shakes people up when you hear that somebody like Olson, who was paid $100,000 by the RCMP to disclose where he buried bodies of children he murdered, that there would be actually a parole opportunity for him. But the story gets even worse. And we'll ask Scott to talk about that. But before we get into that and the Supreme Court decision, Scott, from your perspective as former executive director of the Canadian Police Association, just share your thoughts on the uh, on the shooting deaths of Constables Travis Jordan and Constable Brett Ryan in Edmonton. It's, it's just unimaginable. I mean, a 16-year-old kid and he's got a gun? Uh, wow. I hope uh, people dig in a little bit. It sounds like 
from some of the news that I've seen that they were at least aware of him because of mental health issues, not crime issues. But where is this coming from? Like, you know, and, and you're seeing more and more violent crimes all across the country. And here you got two police officers doing their job and going and responding to a complaint, and all of a sudden they're dead. Like, wow, it's terrible. It is. It's absolutely horrific. And you try to find the words to describe how you feel, and it's extremely difficult. His mother was 55 years of age, yeah, and uh, she'd called police because she'd had an issue with him. They arrive uh, just after midnight, I guess around quarter to one in the morning, and uh, they didn't have an opportunity to reach for their firearms before the 16-year-old was was shooting at them and, and killed them. And then the mother struggled with the with the son. She was shot. Uh, she's apparently going to survive. And uh, and then he killed himself, the uh, the 16-year-old. There, there's, there's so many issues to be dealt with. Yeah, there really are. And I mean, no. I saw the Societal media issues. conference yesterday, and they said they are unaware of where the gun came from. That will be interesting. Yeah, it will. Let's get to this issue of the Supreme Court of Canada deciding it's unconstitutional to deny parole opportunity consecutively for multiple first-degree murder convictions. So if you kill two people and you're convicted of first-degree murder in both cases, the way the law had been changed, it was going to be 50 years before you could be eligible for parole. No longer the court says you can't do that. It has to be concurrent. Your thoughts? Well, this is, as you and I know, we've, in our discussions going back over, I think, 30 years, this is an issue uh, that I've been interested in and involved in, um, originally because it uh, dealt with first-degree murder, and that had special application to the murder of police officers, because by definition in the criminal code, that means it's a first-degree murder charge. And so very shortly after I got to the police association in late 1992, some of these cases of these reviews, they were originally called the Faint Hope Clause, which, by the way, was running at an 80% success rate, um, started kicking in, and that meant that these offenders were allowed to apply for release early. And so I got involved with all of that, and including, with, by the way, the guy you referenced, Clifford Olson. And I just saw the, the incredible trauma this imposed on citizens' families, including one that was the murder of a police officer out in uh, Saskatchewan. And I went out there, and the, the guy's daughter, who herself had become a police officer, said, I mean, she just literally felt betrayed, and that was her word, by the justice system, that this was going to be the case. And so I was involved in a great uh, many more of these, and I, in particular with Clifford Olson, I got to see that these guys, the worst of the worst, the, the real psychopaths, they knew they weren't getting out, but you know what? They were psychopaths, and they enjoyed exerting power over the victims' families. So they would—they really enjoyed tormenting the victims' families. And back in those days, they were allowed to have uh, parole, another shot at parole after two years. So they would do it over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. I mean, it—it it was terrible. And I worked very closely with the then uh, Justice Minister Alan Rock. And we started the process of reforming this. And then in uh, 2011, actually the Conservatives, and if if you recall, and I think you and I spoke the day I attended the hearing for uh, uh, Clifford Olson when he was in St. Anne de Plain with the victims' families, um, you know, this was nuts. We needed to come up with something better than this. 
And the conservatives ultimately did introduce legislation. I think it had some flaws in it. And that's really what the uh, Supreme Court uh, or the juristocracy, as I like to refer to them, uh, uh, based their decision on in uh, 2022 in striking it down. But I got to tell you, from a principal point of our criminal justice system, that ruling makes absolutely no sense. No, it doesn't. Because the no. bill was based on the notion, it wasn't mandatory that the judges had to impose consecutive parole and eligibility terms. It was discretionary. In other words, we were adding to judicial discretion. Yeah, let me just add, let me just fill in a couple of blanks here for our listeners who may not be aware of the case, and, and you are because you were there. So Clifford Olson was a mass murderer of children in British Columbia, and yes. the RCMP paid $100,000 to Olson so that he would disclose where he buried some of the bodies. He wanted more money before he would disclose where all the bodies were. The RCMP weren't coming up with any more money, and Olson refused to disclose where the bodies were. So Olson was judged to be too dangerous to leave his cell. He was judged, listen to this, too dangerous to leave his cell. He was incarcerated in Saskatchewan, but his faint hope clause parole hearing option was going to be held in British Columbia. So what did the government do? They got a private jet to fly Olson from Saskatchewan to the parole hearing, the 745 hearing. Meanwhile, Gary and Sharon Rosenfeld, who's, who were founders of Victims of Violence, an organization that looked after the affairs of victims of violence in this country, their son had been murdered by Olson. They didn't have the funds to fly to British Columbia from their home in Ottawa. And the federal government said, well, you just make your way to British Columbia any way you can. So they fly the killer on a private jet, but the parents of the victim, they're told to make their way to British Columbia any way they can. It was the police association that, that paid for the airfare for them. And you were at that hearing. Yes. And there, it was even more bizarre than that because they had decided, as you described, that he was too dangerous to let out of his cell. The process involved a hearing to see that he would qualify for one of these, but he said he was too dangerous to be allowed to apply to get out early and earlier than what early was defined as. And so they had the hearing with him, you know, speaking through a a wall-mounted speaker. It was just absurd. And then when he actually showed up for the hearing, as you described, he knew he wasn't getting out, and he turned and he looked at the families one of whom, their children, their, their kid had been nailed to the, a tree as this guy was sexually assaulting him. He nailed him. Let's, not, go, let's not get to too, too graphic here. And that he turned to the, look at these families with a smirk on his face and started as though he was banging a hammer on a nail. Yeah. Or, look, do you, are, you, are you concerned at all that the days of the 90s, when these sorts of hearings were held, for the likes of Olson... Maybe, I don't know if they're on the way back, but there might be some efforts underway to restore that kind of option. Um, I don't know, and I've seen an awful lot of media attention because courts are now having to implement the Supreme Court ruling and so are, you know, taking away where consecutive parole and eligibility periods were ordered. Uh, and I saw a good column uh, in the Toronto Sun suggesting that the uh, Government should use a notwithstanding clause to overrule a Supreme Court ruling. I don't think we have to go that far. It's like the nuclear option. And ironically, the, the case was the Alexandra Bichonette case that the Supreme Court ruled on. And the judge in that case didn't follow the exact letter of the law that the conservatives had drafted. 
but he gave him consecutive parole eligibility, ineligibility periods. But instead of it being for 25 years, he made the, the additional one for 15 years. Yeah. So why not build that in so that the, and you know, you can put restraints on it as well, that right. it can only go up to a certain age of things. But I think there's a way to do this legislatively. You can do a reference to the Supreme Court of Canada, and I think we can actually restore uh, this justice so we don't have a justice system that says one thing and does another. It just shakes this country. When police officers are killed in the line of duty and in recent months, it's happened far too frequently in Canada. And the families of the officers grieve their loss, often in the public spotlight. As well, if criminal charges are laid against an accused in the death of a police officer, families have to wait for long periods of time, sometimes years, for a uh, court judgment against an accused. Jason Harnett is the uh, brother of Calgary Police Services Sergeant Andrew Harnett, who was killed New Year's Eve 2020 when he was dragged by a vehicle during a sobriety test. The individual, who was 17 at the time, has been found guilty of manslaughter. He'll face a sentencing hearing late next month. Cannot name him because he was underage at the time of Sergeant Harnett's death. Jason, thank you for coming on the program. I, I can't imagine this is easy. Uh, hi there. Hi there, Roy. How are you? Hi. I, I'm, I'm good. How are you? Well, it's, uh, it's deja vu. Um, you know, here we go again, like uh, you know, you've said and many other people have said. Here we are in this situation again. Here we are again. And uh, once again, your family and other families of police officers who lost their lives or had their lives stolen from them while, uh, while on duty find themselves grieving and grieving very publicly. It, it, must be, it must be so hard on your family each time another officer loses his or her life. Yeah, I mean, uh, my initial reaction was to cry. Uh, I've cried a lot over the last couple of years when I find out information, you know, that another officer has been killed. Um, my second gut reaction was to contact an officer that I know that works in Edmonton, you know, that was friends with my brother and, and reach out to make sure he was okay. And I, I think that probably goes through other police officer families. They, you know, if they hear something like this and they're, they're immediately, uh, worried that it might be their loved one. So, you know, um, uh, but for it to continually happen, sure, it, it brings up a lot of emotions. Um, as you know, our family continues to go through the court system with this as well. So, yes. so that doesn't help either. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, my immediate, uh, uh, feelings are, are for those families. Um, you know, I can't speak for them, but I, I, I'll, I'll bet, you know, I know how we were, we were, you know, in a different world of, of sadness and, uh, being completely overwhelmed. Yeah, I, I thought it was uh, that was it was positive that your brother's name was brought up in the Alberta legislature Thursday, Thursday afternoon was honored in the legislature. I thought that that was a that was an appropriate decision made by the Alberta government, and it's going to take this kind of decision and a change in public attitude toward police and policing. I believe for really significant changes in, in, uh, in our society to take place and police officers to be recognized for what they do. Well, Roy, I mean, yes, of course, I'm, I'm sad. I'm sad for these families. I'm sad for anybody that's had to go through this. And, uh, um, you know, I'm also angry. I mean, and, you know, that anger comes from, 
having to deal with this, our family having to deal with this. And, you know, I do feel there is a broken mental health system. I feel that there's a broken justice justice system. You know, I think there's a lot of societal things that we need to work on um, because we need to stop this from happening. Um, you know, these these gentlemen are going in there to help people, to do their job, and, yeah. uh, and they lost their lives because of it. So next month, the sentencing hearing will take place for the individual found guilty of manslaughter in the death of your brother, Andrew. Can't name him because he was a juvenile under Canadian law at the time of your brother's death. How are you and your family coping, waiting for this sentencing to take place? I know the actual sentence of manslaughter was not what you wanted. You hoped it would be a second-degree murder conviction, but the judge decided... First degree. I'm sorry, first degree. Uh, And uh, the judge decided manslaughter. How are you coping with that? Well, it's an automatic charge of first-degree murder for a police officer to be killed, but a lot of people um, in the public don't realize that they still have to go through the judicial process to prove that. And uh, um, we're very angry. I mean, that uh, both both the individuals that were charged with first-degree murder, both were dropped down to manslaughter. The first one um, is unbelievably set to be released, um, probably in the next month or so. That's what we're hearing. Uh, he was the passenger, and uh, uh, we're going to, to the courts to hopefully get the sentence delivered for the driver, um, who was a week shy of being um, 18 years old. But, you know, the Crown has really done their best part to prove that this individual was living like an adult and uh, should be sentenced as an adult. So it's hard, as I mentioned, to, you know, hear all of this in the news. And, and, you know, honestly, I I feel so sorry for those families. Yeah. Uh, But but we, you know, we hear it uh, once again and then have to relive it every time you go to court. And, And I think that's another real flaw with our system is the fact that these these court trials drag on and on and on, and they they lose their significance, and they become you know old news very soon. But That's it's right. never going to be old news to these families, and never going to be old news to, to our family. Remind us about Andrew. Just a great guy, really colorful guy. Um, you know, very similar to these two officers in, in Edmonton. He wanted to be a police officer from the day he was you know uh, I can remember, and uh, he was you know actively involved in the community. He was going to be a dad too. Um, you know, I'm hearing that uh, one of these officers was expecting, you know, a new a new child, and uh, um, Andrew would have been the best dad. And you know, I'm sure, uh, you know, uh, Officer Ryan, he, he was going to be a great dad too, but he'll never get that chance. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.